Father, we want Christ to increase. Take eyes off of me and away from my words and draw us deeply into the well that is your word. May we be enriched through hearing your word, through the proclamation, through the singing. We want to behold you, God. So grant us this moment, this time, to glorify you. Take the distractions away from us so that we may be focused on your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. In 1869, Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, was readying to preach in an April morning in England, and he opened his sermon with the following words, and let me read them to you. You and I have been busy all this past week with external things. You have had to deal with questions, and what shall we eat, and what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? Or be clothed. It is well, at least on the one day in seven, that we should turn our eyes away from the external to the internal, for the less to the greater. For as life is more than meat, and the body is more than clothing, and so is the soul more important than all which surrounds it. It was most unwise in any man to be continually attending to the exterior of his house as to neglect the comforts of the inner apartments and the warmth of the fireside. The story of the Samaritan woman that Jeremy eloquently read, and thank you for that, you enunciated one of the words extremely well. Don't know if you caught it. Had to pass through. We'll get there. The story of the Samaritan woman presents a woman who is busy about external needs of herself and her household. And she, like us, is busy like a bee doing the daily work. Worker bees toil from sunup to sundown. This is the noon day, the heat of the sun. She, like many of us, may act more like a worker bee toiling But inwardly, she and perhaps you this morning, if you're visiting and welcome to the Church of the Canyons, needs more than water. She needs who is standing in front of her or sitting in front of her, and she has no idea who is there. Perhaps you're like her. Perhaps you've been invited this morning by a family member and you've been visiting. Welcome. Inwardly, she, and perhaps many of you, is very dry internally. She needs Jesus. She needs the living water, the eternal spring of life. And here is the big idea for those that take notes. It's not in your bulletin because I like to make you work. No. (laughs) We have family visiting and I didn't get it in time. That's my bad. Here's the big idea. Whoever drinks of the free gift of salvation, whoever drinks of the free gift of salvation, found by belief in Jesus Christ, 
will never, ever again thirst. He who drinks of the free gift of salvation by belief in Jesus Christ will never, ever thirst again. Open your Bibles, if you will, and we're going to dive into the first 15 verses of a story that goes beyond this. And next week, Lord willing, Matt Davis, one of our elders, will conclude the story of the Samaritan woman. But for now, the first 15 verses go like this. Therefore, in verse 1, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. For context, remember last week when Jeremy was preaching. So there was this transition that was underway, underfoot. John the Baptist had moved northward and the crowds were now moving towards Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist said something at the end of his public ministry that we all want to resonate with, and it is this. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, John the Baptist knew this. We've covered him for many weeks over the last number of months. He moved northwards, and now Jesus and his disciples were starting to go north themselves. And so if you look at a map, and you look at Jerusalem, and you look at where he's going to Galilee, most Jewish people would not have gone through Samaria. But Jesus did. The three points of the sermon are outlined in your bulletin. The first is you have a geographical significance. The second is you'll see a theological significance. And the third is you will see the gift of God unveiled at the well. And so the first, we have a geographical reality. So the distance this morning was around 20 miles, give or take. So that means that basically Jesus and his disciples had to get up before dawn and get on the road. And this was not an easy road that they had to walk. And they decided to go by theological direction, by a divine mandate to go to a place in Samaria. There's three roads that you could go from Jerusalem to Galilee. One is the due north, two is to go east, and three is to go west. Most people traveled that were Jewish east, and they would cross over the Jordan River, and they would go northwards. They would add to their long journey because they did not want to go to Samaria. And so the question I want you to wrestle with right now is, why? Hold that thought. Why would you add to a long journey on foot in a mountainous terrain? First question. So, geographical significance. Let's dive in. Now, you remember in John 3, remember what happened? Who was Jesus with? This is the interactive part. Nicodemus, thank you. So, Nicodemus, and you remember the scene? Nicodemus is approaching Jesus when? By night. night. Thank you, Randy. He's coming by night, and he's coming privately. And remember, Nicodemus is not only the Jew's leader, teacher, he is the Jew. So here is the learned man coming to ask Jesus questions that must be answered. He comes to Jesus, and at the heart of his question is this. Are you the guy? 
Are you the one? We see your signs. We know what you're doing. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they all are buzzing like bees. They know Jesus is around, trust me. But he wants to have the question answered, who are you? This story, one chapter later, is a complete antithesis to John chapter 3. This woman that we're going to be introduced to is not looking for Jesus. She's not seeking Jesus. She's not a Jew. She's not the teacher. She's a Samaritan. And she's an adulteress. You couldn't be much further from John chapter 3 than John chapter 4. Seriously. And we are going to see how Jesus pursues the lost. And guess what? That's exactly what he has done for you, for they're in Christ. And so let's dive into God's word together. The geographical significance, verse 1 in chapter 4. Therefore, When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself, verse 2, was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and he went again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So remember I asked you the question, why, for the Samaritans? Why is that such a big deal? Let me give you background. Let me give you some context. If you were to look in your Bibles, and your supporting scripture should be in your outline, 1 Kings 16, Ezra chapter 4. Again, it's all written for you in your outline. Nehemiah 4, and in Luke 10, we find the following. Immediately after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., the Assyrians had deported from the Israelites from their land and resettled the captured land with captives that were taken from other countries. These captives were brought with their own gods, small g, whose worship was combined with the remnants of the worship of Jehovah and Baal and the mongrel type of religion. These Samaritans were the descendants of the Hebrews who intermarried with the pagan peoples, and as a result, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. They lived in Samaria, an area located just north of Jerusalem, and they half Jews and half Gentiles. When the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom in 721 BC, some were taken into captivity, others were left behind. The ones which were left behind eventually intermarried with the Assyrians, and they worshipped a blend of gods and practiced syncretism The intermingling of marriage, interweaving of religion resulted in the Samaritans not looked favorably at all in the first century. So what's the big idea? God is a jealous God. We will have no other gods, what? Before Before him. And so what you see happening here is an intermarriage, but not just of races, but of religions. And God is not happy with syncretism, a blending, a combination of pagan with godly. They had their own temple. They had their own religious system. The Samaritans had their own copy of the Torah. 
the first five books of the Old Testament, their own religious system completely. There was an issue among these Jews and the Samaritans as to the proper place to worship. The very existence of Samaritans were seen as evil, a blight. They were a pariah. They were evil all the way back to the sins of Jeroboam. They were evil because they intermarried. They were evil because they intermingled their religions. They were evil because they disobeyed God. The evil because they disrupted the rebuilding of the Jewish city and the temple when they came back from their captivity. They were, in fact, so evil that in 128 BC, listen to this, they even attacked and destroyed their own temple. They were half-breed traders. In fact, if you wanted to say something bad about someone, do you know what you called them? A Samaritan. The other option which Jesus had was to head up the eastern bank and cross over the Jordan. He could have gone the western way as well. This would have brought him, though, into Gentile territory. So there's a mixture of opinions. There's a, Jesus had to go this way because it was closer wrong. Jesus went this way because he was on a divine mission, on a divine timetable. And we're going to see in this text one of the most fascinating things I've seen Jesus do. He sends everybody else away to be alone with this woman. His disciples are going to be sent away to go get food. And the place that they're going to land at, the place that he's going to stop at, is no accidental place. It is so interwoven throughout the Old Testament. He had, Jeremy, thank you for the enunciation, pronunciation, to pass through Samaria. Why? Because Jesus was on a divine mission. So if you take notes, that's the key part there. The geography, the hatred of the, of the Samaritans was not the significant part. It's relevant, but it's not the most significant. The significance of the geography is simply this. It was the straightest distance between the two points to get to the mission that Jesus was on. So he came in verse 5 to a city in Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jesus here is seen resting at a location which brings us all the way back. And if you're new and you're visiting our church, one of the things that we typically do on a non-communion Sunday is we read from the Old Testament and we pair up. And so we are currently in the book of Genesis in chapter 13. But in the book of Genesis in chapter 48, verse 22, Jacob has bequeathed to Joseph a section of land that he had purchased from the sons of Hamor. And I give you, here is the verse, Verse 22, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. In verse 6, the term here for the word means a running spring. So look down to verse 6. Jacob's well was there. Let me give you some context here. So in this land, when you settled, the well that was dug here is estimated to be about 100 feet deep. This is not a little easy task to get this well. But Jacob's well still exists today. 
And under this particular well has one unique feature, which is unlike a lot of wells, and many of the historians have commented on this. There's actually a spring that runs under, and there's water that comes upwards from this as a resultant of this. So 100 feet down, there is this well, which is still accessible today. The term for this comes from a running spring. It's deriving from a differing term from verse 11 and 12. Uh, In verse 11 and 12, this is more of a cistern or a dug out well. But when you put it together, it means the well was, here's here's the point, both dug out deeply and running continually. That's what's happening here. And when Jesus takes on flesh, do you remember the verse? We only studied it for two months. It was only here for Christmas. John 1, 14. Incarnation. Why is that relevant? Jesus was tired. Here's the point. Jesus has just walked with his disciples roughly 20 miles. And it is what hour? The sixth hour. The Jewish... The way the time clocks works in the Jewish is this. 6 a.m. equals hour, the start of your calendar or the day. And the, the conclusion is at 6 p.m. And so we're at high noon. Jesus has now walked due north in a mountainous 2,500 feet above sea level, upwards and downwards, roughly four to 500 feet. And they have landed at the well. And his disciples and him are wearied. Jesus takes on flesh, it means he is able to be wearied. He's tired. He's thirsty. And the most shocking detail of this account is going to come within a verse. Now, you may not have ever thought of what I'm going to say to you this morning, but I want you to remember this carefully. Look with me to verse 6 and 7. Jacob's well was there, Jesus being wearied from his journey, sitting Thus, by the well, it was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, you've heard that how many times in your life, for those that have gone to church a long time. But here's what I want you to write down in your notes. And please remember this comment post today. What? Exactly, did he just ask her, give me a drink? He did not have a vessel to drink from. He is asking her to drink from her vessel, which would never, ever, ever have happened to Jews, to Samaritans. This is so shocking, so cross-contaminating that the Jewish people not only would not drink from another, they wouldn't even go to the same city. And Jesus turns and says, give me a drink. This is huge. This has theological significance. Jesus is readying in verses 6 through 9 to tell her the difference between her type of water and his type of water. Look down to verse 6b, second half. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman from Samaria to draw the water. And Jesus said, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. How many of his disciples? All of them. 
Did you need all the disciples to go into the city? Nope. Jesus sends them all away. He's alone. And she comes to this well. And it's the middle of the day. Now, you may not have context of why that is so different, but in this time and in this part of the world, women were the ones that went to the well, so that's quite normal. Typically, they would go alone, and typically they would meet up with other women, and they they would talk. But it would never happen in the middle of the day. It would usually happen at the end of the day, in the cooler times or in the morning. But traditionally, it was around sundown, 4 to 5 o'clock. The women would congregate. They would get the water. It was a daily need. A daily provision was required. And then they would go back to their home. The men would work in the field. The men would work in their labors. But this was, this was a normal task for women. But what was not normal is she came at noon. And so the second question I want you to ask is, why did she come at noon? Why? Hold that thought. This Samaritan woman is alone. This is likely and most probably due to the shame because of her life. Jesus is going to tell her in a few verses, and I won't steal Matt's thunder, but he's going to tell her a lot about herself to the point where she says, oh, wait a second, you're not like a typical person at the well, are you? No, 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 it's not. But at this particular moment, she approaches alone. This is likely due to her shame, which resulted from being isolated from other women. Her shame is evidenced by the time that she goes to the well. Unlike Nicodemus who sought Jesus, here's a woman who wasn't looking for him at all, didn't know he existed, had no idea who he was. And Nicodemus and the Samaritan are closely located in, in the book of John, but far apart in terms of where their hearts are at at this particular moment. Many have speculated as to why the association. One is highly respected, teaching, seeking of Jesus' night. The other one, ill repute, son. She's in the middle of the day, shamed due to her adulterous lifestyle. Additionally, she's a Samaritan. There are many differences, but the single and most important point of similarity is this. Both are desperate sinners in need of Jesus Christ. The only Savior, just like you and me, friends. And there in verse 7 comes a woman from Samaria to draw the water. Give me a drink, Jesus says. This unknown, unsought stranger meets him by the well. For a Jewish man to speak, by the way, to a woman in public was so unusual, but a learned, a rabbi, was another level of unusual. So let me give you a perspective here. The Pharisees often in this day and age when they would see a woman in public would close their eyes and would literally walk the opposite direction. So there's an expression that they would see the Pharisees that would have bruises and cuts on them, and that would be from women talking or trying to talk to them in public. And literally, they would turn the other direction and not even look at her because they were that externally focused of trying to do religiosity in a way that was adhering to the rules. But their hearts were far from God. But here's Jesus, not a Pharisee, This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the incarnate son sitting at the well at noon 
with the Samaritan woman. And this Samaritan woman is alone. No other woman's coming. It's the middle of the day. His disciples have been sent away. And Jesus takes the initiative. She says nothing to him, but Jesus turns to her and asks for a drink. And despite the, the Samaria landing as the shortest route here, she knows that he's a Jew. Did you catch that from the story? Look down at the text. What happens here? There came a woman from Samaria. And she said to him, how is it in verse 9 that you being a Jew ask me for a drink? For I am a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The disciples are gone and Jesus has intentionally approached this woman. Let me read to you here. So here Jesus, a rabbi, a Jewish man, not only talks to the woman, but he talks to the woman, an outcast, despised woman, a half-breed pagan. Worse than that, she is by every measure an adulteress who probably has been adulterous for a long time, hence so many divorces. This is an immoral woman. It's a shocking breach of everything Jews. And for him to say, give me a drink out of her vessel is beyond shocking. Somebody might say, well, why doesn't he have his disciples give him a drink? Well, he can't because in verse 8, they're all gone. They're all gone to buy food. He's there alone and he is there to talk to her. How many disciples does it take to get food? Not all of them. No, but by dismissing them, there was a beneficial for the conversation. Let's put it this way. He wants to be alone with this woman. For Jesus wanted to inform her of the gift right in front of her. Third point, the gift of God. Verse 10. Jesus answered and says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Jesus' request of this woman in verse 8 proves him to be above the biases of the stricter Jews. But then Jesus reorients in verse 10 the physical need to a spiritual need. This woman needs the living springs of water. The Old Testament background for the living waters is the following. If you go back to Jeremiah 2, verse 13, Yahweh decrees the disobedient Jews for rejecting him, the fountain of living waters. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to a time when the living waters would flow out of Jerusalem. Ezekiel and Zechariah in your notes. The Old Testament metaphor spoke of God and his grace, which provides spiritual cleansing and transforming power of the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus takes all of that and reapplies it to himself right here. And he says, John 4, verse 14, look down. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again, but the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, Santa Clarita and Jerusalem actually have almost the same annualized rainfall. Did you know? Fun fact. This is parched dry land sometime. Now we can go on and turn 
the spigots and turn on the faucets and have water come out. The quality of it's suspect, I get it. But the reality is, it still flows. That's not what this was like. This was a daily need, a daily need. Walk to the well, get the heavy cisterns, bring them back, and do it again and again and again. And here's this woman, all by herself, shunned, cast out, despised, and Jesus is sitting, where? Right beside the well. And he initiates the conversation and not only asks her for a drink, he now tells her and reorients that she doesn't have to thirst again. Friends, have you ever seen what bees do? So this past summer, we moved into our house here in town. And one moment, I walked in our backyard and I saw one little bee flying around. And then all of a sudden, I came in the, maybe the next day, and I came in the backyard and there was like about 40 bees. And then the next day, I went back to there and somebody said, try to find where the hive is. And I said, we have a hive? So sure enough. So I went back and I could start to hear the buzzing. I could see the swarming. I went back to our outside area and I saw this structure that it probably was about this big in one day and the next day it was about like this and the next day it was about like this. We had about 40,000 bees within a week at our house. Why do I bring that analogy? So this is what the gospel is like. Somebody first is told, which Jeremy talked about that last week, is called monergistic theology, which means in English is this, God chooses you, you don't choose God, period. Full stop. He initiates the conversation just like Jesus does at the well with this woman by the Holy Spirit and opens darkened minds, softens hardened hearts. And these bees, what happens when they figure out where the good stuff is? What do they do? They fly all the way back and they tell others, and guess what? Hence our backyard with 40,000 bees. And what happens? They relocate to another thing, which is near the good stuff. They live, they die, the queen lives on, and eventually it just continues and continues, right? When we eradicated the hive, we had to get what? The queen out of there. Because if we got the worker bees, it's going to go on and on and on and on. But here's the point. They knew their role. They knew their task. This woman has no idea who is sitting in front of her. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He has not honey he has the living water. This is eternally springing up. Do you catch this in verse 14? This is salvation. This is the gift of God. And he says to her, look at your physical needs. They're going to happen again and again and again. But that's not what you really need. You need the gift that I have to give you. The living water. This is the gift of God. One thought as we conclude this section. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never did a miracle to quench his own thirst? 
Have you ever noticed that Jesus never did anything for himself miraculous? Have you? There's no record in all four gospels that Jesus ever did a miracle to feed himself, to provide for himself. How hard would it have been? Remember what his first miracle was? Water to wine. And you remember when I preached to you that Sunday, I said, did you notice that it was in the purification jars? And they, he asked them to fill it all the way up to the brim. And then he resubstantiated it into wine. So if you can transition water to wine, could you produce water? Of course. So here's Jesus at the well, and all he had to do was go, done, satiated. But Jesus isn't about miracles and signs for his benefit. These things were written so that you may believe. And that by believing, John 20, verse 31, you may have eternal life, the purpose statement of the book of John. This is so important that we understand. He here says to this woman in verse 12, She says, are you greater than the father Jacob who gave us this well? This is an identity of Christ. I skipped over it to finish on it. Jesus starts this conversation with an utterly indifferent, immoral woman. And now we can see as we get to the finish line. In verse 12, she says to him, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and we drank of it sons and the cattle. And Jesus answers in verse 13 and says to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Skip down to verse 25. The woman says to him, 14 verses later, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. And the one who comes will declare all things to us. Verse 26 is the key to this entire story. This is where it's going. Jesus says to her, I speak to you, am he. This is the first self-declaration by Jesus Christ in plain English of his Messiahship. And who does he give it to? A Samaritan adulterous woman at the well. And we read it 2,000 years later. This is so significant. This is the heart of Jesus Christ for the lost. It would have been so easy one chapter ago with Nicodemus in private at night to say, hey, all these things that you're saying, guess what? I'm he. You know the words, I am he, I am in Exodus? It's the same Greek derivative word here. This is divine identity of Jesus Christ, the gift of God, He's saying, I'm standing in front of you. Just ask. Regeneration is a work from God. What is the gift of God? Salvation. So as we conclude, I want to read to you this. Next week, we're going to learn of the reaction from the Samaritan woman when she learns of this identity of Jesus Christ. But you and I are not promised next week. We're worker bees. Yep. 
Some are going to die. We don't know. And some of you might be hearing the story saying, yeah, yeah, I I understand all the details, Pastor Chris. I understand them. But is this transforming your life? Does this reorient your life? See, when this woman hears of who is standing in front of her, she doesn't go back and tell people, hey, there's a guy, there's the weird guy at the well that wants water from me, and he's a Jew. She goes back and she says, no, no, hey, I think this is the guy. This is the Messiah. Come and see of the man who just told me about myself. This is significant. Your lives, like mine, are busied about fluttering about doing external things. Maybe you're young. Maybe you're older. Maybe you think this is boring. Let me just explain to you something right now. You're going to live, you're going to die, and you're going to face eternity. You might not believe it. It doesn't matter. You know what the difference between a bee and a human is? They have no souls. They're both created. We're created. They're created. We are made in the image of God. And God breathed in ruha in the very beginning, and we have a soul, which means that we are made in the image of God, which means we are accountable to our creator, which means one day we will face our creator. And unlike the bee that will live and die and be gone, we're going to stand in front of our creator and we have the knowledge of good and evil. The living water is right in front of you. Jesus Christ stood with the Samaritan, stood there and said to her, I am he. And my exhortation to each of you is this. Do not walk out of here presuming on God or his timing. This could be your well moment this morning. Take him up. Drink it. Apply it. And go live for Christ. This is not a game. This is not to be entertained. This is to be reoriented and transformed by the living waters. And if you do this, come and talk to me. Younger, older, I would journey with you with delight. Our elders would come alongside. We would want nothing further, nothing more. Talk to your parents if you have questions or you're younger. We are here for you. We're going to celebrate Christ who rose from the grave. He's not on the cross, but he is coming again. Let's conclude by praying these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thirsty. We are needy. We are wretched. We are sinners. We need your waters to transform us, to take hearts that were dead, to make them hearts of flesh, to take minds that were dull and to open and illuminate them. There are some in this room, I pray, are thirsty that acknowledge their emptiness, that their sinfulness before you. I pray that they come and drink these living waters. And there's no more fear for any of us that are in Christ 
So we want to praise you, the Lord of the living waters. Whoever drinks of your salvation, the free gift, will never thirst again. That's who we celebrate. And that's what we look to commemorate in the coming